Julie Schaefer was sitting in her tiny office in a big office building one day in Washington, D.C., having serious second thoughts about how the Presidential Management Fellowship that she had just begun actually fit in with her big career goals. Then, a chance meeting sent her on a wild ride deep into the world of dangerous pandemics. Just as I was you know, about to head into an existential or maybe like a quarter-life crisis, my supervisor came by. She had someone with her and said, here, this guy needs your help. And um, it was Bruce Gellin, who was then the head of the National Vaccine Program Office. And that inconsequential meeting kind of wound up being the, the inflection point of, of my career. Schaefer's expertise could not be more timely given COVID-19. She's now consulting with the federal government on strategies and vaccines that could stop the coronavirus pandemic in its tracks. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined now by Julie Schaefer, the Chief Technology Officer for the nonprofit Flu Lab, where she seeks to stretch the boundaries of how technology is used to defeat influenza. Julie has held a number of leadership positions in the U.S. government, including Chief of Staff and later Director of Strategy for the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, the key federal agency tasked with funding to prevent pandemic influenza and emerging infectious diseases. Schaefer also served as the Director for Medical and Biodefense Preparedness Policy in the White House National Security Council under President Barack Obama, where her portfolio included preparedness and response to emerging diseases such as Zika, efforts to combat antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and medical countermeasures preparedness. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Tell us a little bit about your background, what you were doing, and what was this chance encounter that changed the course of your life and turned you into a lifelong flu and pandemic chaser? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Well, so I grew up in upstate New York. You know, my mom had a, a bit of a wanderlust and my dad was always game. So I had an opportunity to travel a lot as, as a child. And, you know, I was just one of those people that always had to do things my own way. So, um, you know, I, when it was time to go to college, I gravitated toward a school that allowed for students to kind of create their own educational experience. And so therefore, of course, I had a self-designed major and two self-designed minors, and none of them were in pandemics. Um, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I kind of gravitated to what I think I thought of as international development. And you know, while I was an undergrad, I did two studies abroad, you know, one in Vietnam uh, right before the U.S. reestablished diplomatic relations, and then later one in South Africa, um, not too long after the end of apartheid. And, you know, when I finished my time in South Africa, I was completely disillusioned, as only you can be when you're 21 years old, of <laughs> international development. And just led me to do the end of my my undergrad experience with absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And so um, I was so fortunate that I had family friends who said, hey, come to DC and get a job and figure it out. And you know, that's kind of what I did. And and um, once I was 
settled in DC and, and had a job and had a place to, you know, friends to live with and had kind of developing, building my adult life. I um, had my first stumble into, into my vocation by uh, volunteering. I, I was volunteering at um, an HIV uh, testing site. And at the time before you got an HIV test, um, you'd have to receive uh, counseling either anonymously or, or confidentially, depending on your choice. And, you know, it just really clicked for me. It was one of the first things that I was doing that I just felt like I was really good at. I was, I was good at, at being in that counseling situation about being, you know, that with the intensity of the one-on-one, um, you know, conversation about really um, intense things. And, and I really loved the testing aspect. And, you know, I loved that there were that that testing provided such important information to the individual, but then also that that fueled the, that important information to a community. So what happened next? So then I thought, well, I've got it. I figured out what my path was. <laughs> so <laughs> handled. So I, you know, I went to um, I went to grad school for two degrees. Um, one in, in public health and concurrently one in social work. And that made complete sense for the career I was planning and, and reproductive and sexual health and, um, you know, that kind of community work. And the one thing I knew as I finished that, those studies, which were wonderful, is that I did not want to feel like I felt like at the end of undergrad when I didn't know what I was going to do and, you know, sitting, you know, sitting in, at the you know, graduation ceremony, just, you know, quaking in my boots because I didn't know what I wanted to do next. So I made sure that I wanted to have a, a job squared away before graduation. And what was that job? So I, I, you know, went through a, a bunch of different options, and one of one of the options that um, that I was that I was looking at was a presidential management fellowship with the federal government. And you know, out of all the options I was looking at, this made the least amount of sense for what I wanted to do. Um, it was you know working in the kind of policy level in the federal government, and you know, I kind of. As much as I, I, I kind of thought I would be working on a community level, kind of doing the, the kind of things I was doing when I was doing HIV testing and counseling. But, you know, I just kept making it through the various application stages and somehow found myself a finalist. And uh, for reasons that I, I could not explain to you, um, except that it just kind of felt right, I, I took a position through the fellowship in the immediate office of the Secretary for Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., Wow. So be careful what you wish for, right? Well, that, yeah, yeah, sorry. You know, be careful about, be careful on how you, uh, you you know, those, those kind of instincts, your, your gut feelings, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so my gut feeling had told me to to go to the, you know, to go to take this job, uh, this presidential management fellowship. And then um, next thing I knew, I was sitting in, in a little office and um, in a big building and, you know, wondering, what in heaven's name I was thinking and making this decision. And then what happened? And then I was, I'm very fortunate because just as I was, you know, about to head into an existential or maybe a quarter life crisis, yeah, my, my supervisor came by and, and she, she had someone with her and said, here, this guy needs your help. And um, it was Bruce Gellin, who was then the head of the National Vaccine Program Office. Um, and that 
inconsequential meeting kind of wound up being the, the inflection point of, of my career. Wow. And, and what, what, was, uh, what was the meeting about? What was that conversation? And, and what, what did you think of it? Sure. So, you know, what he needed his, what he needed help for was that he had this draft pandemic influenza preparedness and response plan. It was long overdue to be put out for public comment. And you know the, the document itself was really long, really, really long, and really kind of full of panic. I mean, it just identified nearly endless needs. Um, you know, in, in, in the U.S. at the time, you know, we didn't have nearly enough capacity to make vaccines if we needed them. You know, a pandemic vaccine, in, in, and we really only had a, there was very limited global supply of of a drug to treat influenza. And, you know, most importantly, there's just not a lot of state and local plans or resources. So it was, it was, um, it was, a, it was a plan that identified a lot of problems and didn't have a lot of solutions. But it wasn't going anywhere, was it? It wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> it wasn't going anywhere. We, we bravely soldiered on with the plan. We, we got it cleaned up and, um, and, and put it out for public comment and got a lot of public comment. Um, and... But really, you know, that, that plan itself, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't really going anywhere. But, you know, while all of this is happening, you know, the context around us was changing. And what was that context? Well, so uh, a few things were, were happening. You know, first of all, there was a, a really concerning um, outbreak of, of H5N1 avian influenza um, that started in, in Asia and in Southeast Asia. And this was a, um, yeah, what's called a, you know, a highly pathogenic um, influenza virus, and meaning that um, you know, it, was, it, it killed <laughs> those, those, those creatures, including humans, that, that were infected with it. It had a very high mortality rate when it infected people. So that was um, that was a, a, a wake up call for a lot of people about how destructive influenza could be, and the other thing the other thing that that happened was was Hurricane Katrina, which among many other things, you know, reinforced the absolute need for coordination and planning among state and local governments and the, and the federal government and and you know how and what it looks like if if that coordination and, and planning doesn't take place. So, so you were working on all of this, right? So how did you uh, then end up at BARDA? And tell us a little bit, because it's a key agency that's involved now also with COVID. How did you make that transition? And, and you, you did a bunch of different work, including influenza, but not limited to it, right? Right. You can't tell, you can't talk about BARDA without talking about the, how the context changed with, with influenza. And after Hurricane Katrina and after all of that, um, you know, that, National strategy for pandemic influenza was released, and the reason. And normally, you you wouldn't talk with in such um, excited terms about a, a government document, but <laughs> <laughs> but but really, it um, it was such an important it was such an important document because what it did was, you know, I talked about how that that first plan that we put out identified a lot of problems and didn't have a lot of solutions. National strategy for pandemic influenza laid out 
uh, an approach, a really bold approach to address a really big problem, looking at it from a federal government part perspective, but also every level of government and also the private sector and, you know, and everyone else and you know families and individuals. But the other part that it did, and here's where BARDA comes in, is that it put significant money behind that planning. So it, it said these constraints you were talking about in that old plan, those constraints go away with enough funding. And so one of the, some of the key things that came out of that plan, and, and, this is, and, and this is what kind of carried me over into my time at BARDA, was to radically change um, what, the, what the influenza vaccine landscape looked like. I talked a little bit about how you know, there, there was so little capacity to make vaccines that if we needed to make enough to, to supply you know, everyone in the U.S., not, you know, not even talking about everyone in the world, but even just covering um, everyone in the U.S., you need you know, hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines, and we had so little. And what that plan did and the funding behind it was said, okay, we're going to build the capacity within the United States to make hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine. And that was one of the first things when BARDA was established in 2006, that was one of the first things that BARDA was, was charged with. So, and, and so you were responsible for a bunch of different strategic uh, decisions uh, that had to be executed within BARDA de dealing with the influenza vaccine and, and the pandemic, right? Potential pandemics. That's right. I was so fortunate, uh, you know, and, and I think so many of us can say that we that that we've been that we've had you know kind of helping hands along our careers that kind of led us into different directions. And while I started in policy, um, is shortly after you know I, I moved to Barda, um, I moved into the program part. And so, uh, you know, me with with this liberal arts background and then more of a, a more of a science-based science um, graduate school background moved into the, the, the kind of the craft or the, the trade of, of what it takes to make a vaccine. And so, you know, the, the wandering around vaccine manufacturing facilities and figuring out how air handling systems work and really the, the nuts and bolts of what it takes to make a whole lot of vaccine um, and in using different approaches, using ones that, that we know of and also trying different kinds. And, and then after that, you wound up at the National Security Council at the White House. That's exactly right. So after I after I'd had some time both doing policy and then it working in the program aspects of, of really the, that advanced development of vaccines and, and drugs, um, I was just starting to feel a little tiny bit restless. And so so I guess the, the universe heard me, and um, and I wound up in uh, at you know going over for a detail at the at the. Um, at the National Security Council, and, and you know, at that, I think that I, I was suggested for that position because of my pandemic influenza background, because it seemed like it was it was a good time. It was um, shortly after um, the Ebola outbreaks in West Africa, and it seemed like a, a good time to revisit our pandemic planning. So now that you you know you've you've had all of that experience right you've had it from every different angle dealing with and studying pandemics looking at vaccines and then comes covid can you put in perspective sort of everything that you'd learned about influenza and why this is so different and what makes this such a such a terrible 
uh, problem and a challenge for the world. Right. You know, and I think that, um, you know, the experience that I had when I was at the National Security Council, you know, I went there to address pandemic planning, but almost immediately wound up responding to another outbreak, Zika. And I think that there are some threads from for influenza and Zika and, and all the in a number of these other infectious diseases that, that help shape why COVID-19 is a particular challenge. You know, first I would say is that all of that time that, that we spent building that vaccine infrastructure for influenza, well, that just doesn't exist for, for COVID-19. We didn't have a, we didn't have a vaccine back, backbone waiting to, to just, you know, just you know, pop, you know, pop in the exact uh, virus strain that, that we were presented with and, and, and get going on manufacturing. We really had to, to start much closer to the beginning with COVID-19 than, than with influenza. And so essentially there's really nothing, right? You're starting from a blank slate. Right, right. And that, and in, in so much of the, the pandemic planning for influenza, the idea is, um, immediately start making vaccine as soon as possible. And then all the other measures that you do, like community mitigation guidance, which you know, a lot of that it were, have a, we all have a lot of firsthand experience with, like uh, dismissal of students from schools and um, everybody working from home and everyone staying at home, canceling large gatherings. Those are just things that, you know, pandemic influenza is, is that, that these are short-term measures while we wait for a vaccine. And for COVID-19, it's a much longer wait because we don't have that vaccine at the ready. And, and, and these tools that we're using, you know, social distancing and, and essentially quarantining and all of that, they're pretty primitive and, and historic, right? Right. I mean, it, it, you really think about what our, how technology, how much technology we employ in our day-to-day life you know, you and I are not sitting in the same room right now. We are, we are in different locations having a conversation. Um, we carry in our pockets uh, very powerful computers. And, you know, every, every part of our life, you know, our, our refrigerators can talk to us if we want them to. But um, we, how quickly COVID-19 brought us to our knees and had us rely on technology uh, approaches. I wouldn't even call them technologies, but approaches that have been used for a very long time that were used in 1918 for, you know, the great influenza pandemic of 1918 when we really didn't even have a full understanding of what influenza was, but we knew that covering, you know, face masks were important and canceling large gatherings was important. And now we hear, here we are again using a lot of the same tools. And, you know, you've devoted your life to studying influenza and, and yet, you know, it's not that easy, right? I mean, you can, you could spend your life studying it, but even though it's, it's a small virus, it's incredibly complicated. And what does it say for, you know, you've done that for 15 years. <laughs> what does it say for COVID and how far we have to go before we get a handle on this? Uh, you know, I, you're exactly right. It, it's, it really is. I think viruses are humbling. I think that that's the one thing that they all have in common. They all are, are, they're somewhat mysterious in their own ways, but they're always humbling in the same way that we can focus enormously and put great resources into into addressing influenza and still not have a vaccine that works as well as we want and still don't have drugs that work as well as we want, even with all of that attention and focus. And now we're presented with a virus that we know even less about 
and that seems to have we learn seems to, we we seem to learn every day the way that it affects it, seemingly every cell in our bodies when, when it's when infected. It, I think it's it's very humbling. Um, the one thing that I, I have been heartened by is is to see the the incredible amount of research that is going on and how more readily available that research is and having been in you know having the the rise of preprint journals where new ideas which may be sound scientifically or not but they're out in the public discourse um, to be talked about among scientists early is, it seems to be really key when there are so many mysteries and so what has surprised you the most about covid-19 would you say the virus oh my goodness what hasn't surprised me i mean i think the part that i find most daunting is the um, what seems to be the asymptomatic spread is um, you know that because that really cuts right to the heart of how humans interact with each other and to to not to enter every interaction in a close interaction knowing that you could be at risk of infecting someone else or them infecting you and neither of you have any knowledge and, and that's that makes things really uh, really challenging. And you know, with this fall and winter coming, what, what sobered me up when we talked earlier was the fact that not only will we have potentially COVID, but we may also have the flu. And, and how does one, one cope? Right. And, you know, something that I think a lot about that, that doesn't make me, uh, doesn't make me the hit at any virtual cocktail party, but there's nothing about this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, that makes, that in any way lessens the risk of having an influenza pandemic. So we could have the, the severity of whatever influenza strain, strains that, that we are presented with next, has at the, this current pandemic has no bearing on it. So maybe we'll have a mild influenza year, or maybe we'll have a really hard one, or maybe an influenza pandemic will emerge at the same time. And so I think that really is very daunting. and. Um, makes me uh, makes me very worried and very and hopeful and that the influenza will uh, will cut us some slack this year. I want to talk a little bit about vaccines and then testing and then preparedness. In terms of vaccines, what do you see will happen given that what you've seen in the past with the with the flu vaccine development and and you know having to constantly uh, iterate every year as the virus mutates and and you know causes a lot of grief. <laughs> yes. Well, so I think we're, we're really at that stage where we're, we're watching and waiting. I mean, I think we, we don't know exactly which vaccines are going to work the best against this virus. And so there's, there's a lot of unknowns there. And, and I think the other thing that remains to be seen is how much the virus will change or not change. We, we seem, it seems to be right now, and of course, everything, we're, we're always learning more that, um, that this virus doesn't mutate quite as often as influenza, which doesn't say much because influenza just seems to mutate quite, quite a lot. But um, so if it's, you know, if it, if the virus is more stable, then that means that the that a, a vaccine in the same you know formulation, whatever is chosen, should be able to offer protection for for longer. That's certainly everyone's hope. Um, but there is a, a great deal of 
of unknown and, and all of the variables are unknown, unlike say an influenza pandemic where we know what platform of vaccine we're going to use. The exact the exact influenza strain that that's put into that platform will be would be dependent on the pandemic, but the but the technology and the approach would we already know what that is and and with COVID nineteen we're we're figuring that out. So we really are, as they say, um, building the plane while flying. Flying. And with influenza, for instance, you were saying uh, when we talked earlier that you know unlike smallpox, which could be eradicated because you know you don't have animal reservoirs with with the flu virus. You know, with wild birds carrying it around the world, it makes it impossible to eradicate. I mean, what's what do we know about COVID nineteen and and where we might end up with it? Right. I mean, closer to to um, influenza certainly than than a virus like smallpox. We you know we know we. I mean, we're we're fairly sure that 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 this virus was originally and and came from bats. And um, we know that it, this virus can infect a, a whole, a, a wide range of, of, of um, creatures, much like influenza can. And so that makes, that all makes it um, also, you know, that, that, that the goal is not eradication. The goal is finding a way to protect humans from becoming ill from the virus. So we can't, so we can't get rid of so that maybe the idea is not to, to, you know, banish the virus from the earth, but to, but to keep it from, um, to keep it from harming humans. So in terms of vaccines, what, what's a realistic scenario? What can we, you know, you hear, you hear a lot about, you know, we're going to rush this and this is going to happen. And we already have all these candidates being tested, but from your experience, what should we expect? I mean, we're in such uncharted territory. Um, the the timelines that we're discussing are are far uh, faster than than any timeline that anyone is than we've ever tried. That doesn't mean that anyone is uh, proposing taking shortcuts on the important safety and efficacy testing. It, it really means that they're looking at all the places where. Um, where things can be accelerated, when where we can apply that um, technologies that that we haven't before toward this problem. So, but the the the, the parts that that count the most in terms of does this is this vaccine safe to use in people, and does it do what we want it to do? Um, there are no short, shortcuts to that, and that's the, the that's the part that it also has the the greatest uncertainty. So let's talk about testing. Uh... Why why can't more people get tested? I mean, what are the issues? It seems like uh, Europe is doing a, an incredible job of testing people. Asian countries are doing it. What's the holdup and what's the hang up? Well, I, I don't know if, if there's any one person who has a full has their full arms around exactly what the, the hang up is. I mean, I think as as um, many as many people has been documented in, in many places that we the U.S. got off to. A slow start, and um, with really that it's been real, it's a hole that's been hard to dig out of, in terms of availability of testing. And good things that have happened are that there are plenty of different tests that are now available through um, through the FDA's emergency use authorization. Um, the bad news is is that as more of them are being used, um, because the 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 process for an emergency use authorization is a little bit different than a usual uh, approval or clearance. Not all of them have performed as well as we wanted them to. So first we had, I mean, so first we had problems that we had some constraints around 
you know, getting those first tests going. And then now that we have lots of different tests available, we have some constraints around how well they perform. And then of course, we're always going to have constraints when everybody needs and uses the same materials at the same time, we will have constraints on availability of, of materials like swabs or the, you know, the, the, the chemicals that are needed to make the tests work. These is just, um, when, when everything is happening at the same time around the world, these, these kind of supply constraints happen. And is that happening? Is that one of the reasons? I mean, I think that that's not luckily the, the biggest reason, but it, but it is something that there have been, I think there have been, you know, spot um, kind of constraints around, around supplies, which is, again, um, to be expected, um, and and so I think that that all of those things make it. And then because of the unique way that the United States uh, works in terms of how 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 healthcare works with us and how our states and locals and and federal different entities and it, it can make it really challenging to to have um, kind of unified testing systems that might that might be occurring in other countries. You've been in this for 15 years. You've dealt with pandemics. You've planned for pandemics. Just looking at where we are now, what has that taught you? Well, I mean, I think, you know, like like a lot of us, I think, you know, we think when we've seen a pandemic, you know, we, we've seen one pandemic. I mean, we planned for, in, in 2005, we planned for a very severe influenza pandemic. And then we got one in 2009 that didn't look anything like what we planned for. And then now, we're, now we have a pandemic that's not an influenza pandemic, but, in, but has more elements of what we planned for in 2005 than the, one that we, than the actual influenza one we saw in 2009. I think that um, one thing that, the, that I've learned is that it's important to have due planning but the actual plans are not used as often as what people learn from doing the planning itself. So the relationships that are built by doing those plans and, um, and, and the, the time that people take to kind of think through scenarios are probably more, is probably more valuable than anything that's typed up and collecting dust on the corner of your, your, your desk. And in terms of pandemic preparedness, right? I mean, you've seen the crisis of lack of uh, stockpiles of ventilators and masks, you know, critical medical supplies. And we have a federal agency, BARDA, that's tasked with all of this. And we have a strategy. We've got experts. But how does one prepare for something like this without over-preparing or under-preparing? Right. And that's, gosh, that really is the hardest part. Because, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that is most important to do, like like stockpiling of key of key medical material that we know we're going to need, like like masks and respirators, like gowns, like um, certain you know certain equipment that we just uh, ventilators or you know things like that. You know it's very costly um, to purchase and then maintain these things are maintained in the strategic national stockpile. Um, there they require um, you know. Everyone always has uh, five different places that we, that we could put a dollar in, ter- in terms of, of of any kind of budget, you know, budgeting in our homes, and then certainly federal budget. And so, um, the what it takes to set aside those enormous fun, enormous sums of money, and then 
pay into that to keep to maintain their their storage when they may never be used and then replace them when they expire um, it's it's very challenging um, it's you know humans have a hard time um, you know, doing that kind of risk planning, and and you know, and a million books are, have been written on the subject, so I, I won't, I won't attempt to to write another one on on this in this conversation, but I think that a lot of it really comes down to real uh, human, the way that humans make decisions, that you know, in this moment, right now, in this crisis moment, people care more about masks and respirators than in any time during my career, um, and. When this is all over, they will go back to being what they were before, probably, which is deeply unsexy to everyone, but you know, me and a 20, maybe 20 other people. <laughs> so I think that it's that maintaining that attention to, the, to that kind of preparedness is incredibly challenging. Yeah, I guess the human memory too, right? We just forget what we want to forget and, uh, and, and, and habits are very hard to change. They are, they are, and we are, and we, we, as humans and as as decision makers, um, you know we we tend to to address what's right in front of us, and so planning for some ahead for something that might happen or may not happen is really challenging in a context when five things are in front of you, kind of screaming in your face. Based on all of your wealth of experience and knowledge, if there was one thing we could have done differently, with the caveat that hindsight obviously is twenty twenty and we're not second guessing, but if there were one thing we could have done differently that might have changed the course of this, what might that be? I think it early testing. I think that um, if we had understood, if we had had more testing available um, much earlier, we would have had a much better handle on what on what was going on in the in the U.S. just within the U.S. context alone, that could have really made a huge difference, especially in environments like New York City. Julie, looking back at that day when uh, you sat in your office and watched Bruce Gellin walk in walk in there with that languishing pandemic influenza plan in his hands, what would you say to that young woman about that this journey that you've been on? Well, I think that I would I would say to her <laughs> that. Um, well, actually, you know what I would say that, that I'm glad you did it just how you did it, which is just keep saying yes to um, unusual opportunities that, that present themselves because, uh, because it leads to some of the most interesting experiences that a person could have in a career or just even in a life. That's great. And, and we should add that Dr. Gellin currently is president of the global immunization of global immunization at the Sabin Vaccine Institute. So very, very prominent figure. Do you uh, look back on that time together and wonder where we are today and, and talk about it? We sure do. I mean, it's, you know, the, the great thing about a lot of the relationships that I formed during those early days of, of pandemic planning is that they are still good colleagues and, um, and, you know, and Bruce and I collaborate on a, on a project around universal influenza vaccine now. So we've continued, uh, we've continued our quest all these years later. And, and we're all serving on this no COVID coalition, of course, uh, which is a, the nonpartisan coalition that has all these experts trying to communicate accurate facts about COVID to, to Americans, particularly in high risk and hard hit places. Yes, and it's been such a, it's been such a pleasure. It really feels like it combines so many of the of the things that have um, have mattered so much to me throughout my career, even before I knew what my career would be. 
Have you had uh, any what I call viral insights about your life and work because of COVID-19, you know, that moment of clarity that's brought upon by a crisis? You know, I think that so many of the things that I think would be most helpful for um, for addressing COVID-19 are the things that I'm most passionate about. And so in terms of understanding, you know, having wearables that, that will tell us that we're sick before we're sick, pre-symptomatic identification of infection, and having testing that's available in our homes. Those things that I, I've always been so passionate about, this is only reinforced that I, would, that I was passionate about the right things and that it, it actually, it all is fueled my fire to, to get there on, on those technologies. Oh, that's wonderful. Julie, it's so great to have you and to talk about deadly viruses and the havoc that they wreak. <laughs> Thanks for joining. It's my favorite topic. <laughs> Thank you so much. Julie Schaefer is the Chief Technology Officer for the nonprofit Flu Lab, where she seeks to stretch the boundaries of how technology is used to defeat influenza. In addition to all her amazing roles and responsibilities that I cited in the introduction, Julie also is a member of the No COVID Coalition, of which I'm also a member. The nonpartisan coalition consists of all manner of experts seeking to communicate the facts about COVID-19 to Americans, particularly those in high-risk and hard-hit places. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.